When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll have analysis and commentary on the midterm elections from Joan Walsh and John Nichols. And yes, there is somebody worse than Donald Trump. It's the newly elected president of Brazil. His name is Jair Bolsonaro. We'll have a report from our man in Rio, Andy Robinson. But we start today with John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author most recently of the book Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, John. Our goal had been to take control of the House. A lot of work went into that. The Democrats did take control of the House. The Senate was always a much harder map. The Republicans expanded their control of the Senate. But the House is the big news that's really going to change politics in Washington and in America. What are the immediate consequences of the Democrats winning the House? Well, the immediate consequences is that when leaders of the House of Representatives, the People's Chamber, swear their oaths to protect, to preserve, and honor, and respect the Constitution of the United States of America, they will actually mean it. And that is a dramatic change, because for the last two years, the House of Representatives has been run by Paul Ryan, who will soon be out of office by his own resignation, but scared off by a challenge by an iron worker named Randy Bryce. You will have all of the people who made the House a sycophantic service agency for the Trump administration displaced by people who actually respect the concept of separated powers and a system of checks and balances, where the people of the United States reasserted some sort of oversight over a presidential administration oversight that did not exist and did so in a way that will put, just as an example, a guy who raced to JFK Airport 
after Trump did the Muslim ban in the first week or so of his administration and not only protested the ban, but secured the release of a refugee who was detained at the airport. That man, Jerry Nadler, will now be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Yes. The guy who actually oversees constitutional and legal issues. Just pause. Take yeah. that in. The New York Times did an analysis of every congressional district and found that 312 swung to the left, that there was a substantial blue shift. Now, only 29 of those actually flipped from the Republican to the Democratic column. But nationwide, in a huge number of districts, the great majority of districts, there was a shift to the left. That seems significant. It's sort of the silver lining in the failure to win election of some of our biggest and most important candidates in Texas, Georgia, and Florida. Every election is going to have disappointments. In this election, you had a, a group of candidates, Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia, Andrew Gillum in Florida, uh, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, and, and frankly, a whole bunch of other people who didn't get quite as much publicity, uh, seeking to take states that, that seemed, at least in some people's calculations, to be either unwinnable or very hard to win and, and make them competitive. All three of those candidates that we just mentioned succeeded in making their states competitive. Uh, in the case of Stacey Abrams, may yet, as the final votes are counted, get it close enough to have a, a runoff election. But the, the bottom line is they were very, very successful. They didn't quite win, at least last night. Uh, what happened in the three states that made Donald Trump president? Because we know that Donald Trump lost the popular vote in 2016 by almost 3 million votes. And yet he became president because of a narrow victory in the Electoral College. And the three states that, that gave him that narrow victory, uh, all states that, that were narrowly decided in his favor, that had been traditionally thought of as Democratic states uh, in presidential races, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Well, what happened last night? Democrat won governor of Pennsylvania. Democrat flipped Michigan, became governor of Michigan. Democrat flipped Wisconsin, became governor of Wisconsin. Oh, my goodness, those three states also had U.S. Senate races. What happened there? Democrat elected in Pennsylvania. Democrat elected in Michigan. Democrat elected in Wisconsin. And then let's throw in one other state where a uh, state that had you know, trended a little bit Democratic in presidential races recently, but then flipped over to Trump in 2016, our state of Ohio. Statewide race there, Sherrod Brown, guy who was targeted by the Republicans, wins easily, gets reelected. Uh, my premise here is that where Democrats had a competitive state or a competitive, you know, map where it was, you know, where you really could get a, a feel for whether this wave was real, if it was coming, uh, they won a whole bunch of places where Donald Trump won. In fact, notably, they won the governorship of Kansas. Yeah. So I think we can, we can fairly say that what you saw on Tuesday night was a wave election. It's just that, you know, much like in Holland, uh, where they've developed some really good flood control system, uh, the Republicans have, uh, in many states across this country as regards to congressional elections, erected or developed systems 
that can guard against a wave election. And so it doesn't necessarily get reflected in the full result. But if we dig into that result, and if we look at measures like the governorships, you see evidence that, that it really was a big deal, that all that organizing, all that effort did pay off in a lot of places. And even where it maybe didn't win, it made states competitive. And so final concept here, states that, that started 2018 as competitive, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Democrats did very, very well. They, they scored not every victory they might have wanted, but a lot of them. States that weren't considered competitive, like a, a Texas or a Georgia, they're now competitive. Yeah. They've, they've come into play. And so this overall, when you add it all up, I have to tell you, I, every, every kind of hour as I look at more results, as I look at more data, I come away saying, this is a very, very significant election and a very significantly good election for Democrats and for progressive forces. Let me ask specifically about the progressive Democrats. After last night, what is your sense of the Democratic Party today and the Clintonites versus the Bernieites here in Southern California, where there were hopes of flipping maybe five Republican districts. Only three were flipped, and not all of those were progressives. A couple of them were progressive Democrats. At least one of them was not. What is your sense of the temperature of the Democratic Party uh, the day after here? Look, a tremendous number of progressive Democrats did really, really well. And let me give you one example of this. And we could use the Senate races in this regard. What would you call a candidate who was first out of the block, right, in opposing Brett Kavanaugh, announced opposition almost immediately, also opposed Neil Gorsuch, who supports single-payer Medicare for all health care, who supports, you know, free and reduced uh, college costs, uh, who announced at every stop on the campaign trail, net neutrality is on the ballot, and we have to defend the First Amendment of the Internet, and who has a record of opposing the Patriot Act, Patriot Act and opposing wars. Would I would call, call that a progressive? I would call that a progressive. Okay. And what if I told you that progressive, running in a state that Trump won, was at some point the top targeted Senator for defeat by the Koch brothers and the Republicans, spending literally millions of dollars, not just this year, but all the way back into last year, to defeat this person. Uh, would you call that a vulnerable candidate? I, I would. Who is it? Who is it? Well, that's, that's Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, and she got 55% of the vote. Fantastic. She won a landslide victory and you know beat back a, a challenge from a Republican who was a state senator tied to Scott Walker, who Donald Trump came in and campaigned for within you know two weeks of the election and ran and won as a Medicare for All progressive. And I can show you examples around the country. Now, let me offer you another example, if I might. Please. Uh, what would you call somebody who, a Democrat, who you know, literally put up ads criticizing Medicare for All, uh, who scrambled away from national Democrats, wouldn't appear with Bernie Sanders when he came to this person's state. Would you call that person a progressive? Never. Well, I'm afraid not. And so that's, that's Joe Donnelly in Indiana, also targeted, 
uh, ran very much a, a centrist, even in some ways center-right campaign, he got beat. And so with all due respect, uh, we're talking there about two states where uh, Democrats have had history of victories. They've had setbacks in recent years. And yet Tammy Baldwin and progressives swept a, a lot of victories in Wisconsin. Uh, many of these people who pulled their punches got beat. Now, I'm not trying to beat up on the folks who lost. I understand some of them were in rough states and, and faced challenges. I know politicians, you know, they, they figure things out. And I think we have to acknowledge Joe Manchin won in West Virginia as a guy who voted for Kavanaugh and, you know, and, and, you know, did some things that I think a lot of progressives didn't like. So it's not always cut and dried. But anybody who suggests to you that progressives weren't winning last night or that progressive policies weren't prevailing in competitive battleground places needs to get out of their little think tank in Washington and come out to America where I can point you to remarkable folks who won tough races in, in competitive states and competitive districts across this country as unapologetic progressives. And I will tell you that the Progressive Caucus in Congress is going to get bigger after this election and that it's going to have remarkable new people coming in. Progressives did great this year. And their message was summed up by Congresswoman Presley from the Boston area now. Change can't wait. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show. A pleasure, my friend. Start Making Sense is supported by Audible. What would it look like if we all listened more? Listening to audiobooks motivates us and inspires us. It even brings us closer together. And there's no better place to listen than Audible, because now Audible members get even more. Exclusive audio fitness programs, audiobooks, Audible originals, and more. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now, with Audible originals, the selection has gotten even more custom with content made for members. For example, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse by John Nichols. Every month, Audible members get one credit, good for any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. They also get access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Don't like your audiobook? Exchange it, no questions asked. Start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash sense or text sense to 500-500. That's audible.com slash sense or text sense to 500-500. That's sense, S-E-N-S-E. You can do it with audiobooks. Now we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a CNN political analyst. She's also former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, we want to talk with you, especially about uh, women candidates. There's good news and there's some bad news, too. Let's start with the good news. Well, the good news is that more than 100 women are going to go uh, to Congress this year, and 
most of them, 90, I think it's 90% of them, will be Democrats. And of the, we still don't know how many seats the Democrats managed to flip. It's somewhere around 30. It could be as high as like 35, 38. A majority of those are women too. So it's a historic year for women. All of the change we've been talking about, you and I, since the Women's March has, you know, consistently over time in Virginia and the special elections and now in the midterm, it really has translated into women running and women winning. Of course, the big, uh, can we call it the big heartbreaker of Stacey Abrams in Georgia? I guess it isn't quite over yet. Yeah, I mean, I will say that my heart is broken because she faced so much voter suppression. Yeah. Uh, but I will not say it. Uh, that it's broken because she's lost, because she is challenging. She's not conceding. She's challenging this. She's asking for a recount. She's not quite within uh, the realm where you can get a recount. She's not quite within the realm where you can get an automatic runoff. If if Kemp comes down under 50%, there will be a runoff. But her campaign is pointing to somewhere between 100 and 200,000 potential ballots, whether it's absentee ballots that haven't been counted, a lot of provisional ballots that haven't been counted. Provisional ballots are the ones that we never think about because most races are decided, you know, pretty easily. But if for some reason you don't find yourself on the voter rolls and you think you should be there, you can vote provisionally and come back later and prove why, you know, bring ID or whatever. Somehow prove that you belong there. I've done it before when I've moved, but usually it doesn't matter. This time it will matter because Brian Kemp swept so many people off the voter rolls because he claimed they were inactive for the last couple of elections. So this provisional number, we don't even know how big it is because that's how terrible the counties have been at keeping track of it. But she is chasing down every vote. And so I will not talk about Stacey Abrams in the past tense. You and I can get back on the, on the phone and, and back on this podcast and talk about it if that happens. But I won't do that today. No, you're absolutely right that the vote suppression is what's responsible for the current ambiguous situation with Stacey Abrams. She's, I don't know, something like 77,000 votes behind as we speak at this hour. Brian Kemp removed, what, something like a million people from the voting rolls in Georgia over the last four years. She would have won outright last night if it hadn't been for the vote suppression. Isn't that true? I think it's true. I mean, you know, we can't prove it, but I, I think it's true. And those people, again, were taken off the rolls for nothing more than not voting for a couple of cycles. And, you know, that is actually common in our democracy. I try to vote every time, uh, I, and I don't always manage to do it, I have to say, almost always. But, you know, people have reasons that they can't get to the polls, and when they feel like it doesn't matter, whether that's because the candidates aren't good or the candidates are just so clearly going to lose, people don't vote, and, and that, that's true in, in every state to be honest. So the fact that he used that excuse to clear the roles uh, of people, and the vast majority were African-American, is terrible. But she's not even going to be able to contest that, John. She's going to be contesting. Well, I mean, to some extent she will if people, if those people did go to the polls and then and, and they got a provisional ballot. But the 
the vast majority probably didn't. There's been so much negative publicity about what he's done. I'm sure that discouraged some of some potential voters too. So it's what's heartbreaking is seeing how hard it is to run a clean race and win in a state like Georgia. She has come very close, and I know that her her staff, her lawyers, she herself, they are just going to bird dog every potential vote, and they should. And they should shine a spotlight on how dirty Georgia's processes are. We've discussed before, Brian Kemp, in case anyone has missed this, Secretary of State, responsible for all of this voter purging, and he's also the governor who has won by, you know, around a point. It should not be allowed if we had a better country and a better system of voting. Someone would have stepped in. The Justice Department would have stepped in and said, you know, thank you for your service, Secretary of State Kemp, but because you're a nominee for statewide office, you're going to have a seat, you're going to run for office, good luck, and somebody else is going to supervise this election. It is outrageous that that did not happen. Just one footnote here. Stacey Abrams gave a speech after midnight on election night that was defiantly not a concession speech. I thought it was the best speech I had heard in the whole campaign. She she is really trying to lay bare all the ways that mainly southern states, but not only southern states, are disenfranchising people. And it is her mission to show all the ways that people have been turned away when they deserve to vote. And even if, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't win. She gets within several hundred votes because she finds these, or, or she re-enfranchises these voters. That will still be worth it for her. Um, yeah, she's, she's quite amazing. The um, Senate had some disappointments to women who stood up to Trump in Republican states were defeated, Heidi Heitkamp and Claire McCaskill. Very sorry to see uh, both of them go down. I was, too. Uh, you know, they they are both excellent politicians. They are certainly to the center compared to us. Yeah. Uh, but given where they're running, they, they did their best, and they, vote, they both came out against Judge Kavanaugh. Heidi Heitkamp in a really moving way because she revealed that her mother had been sexually assaulted. Her mother just died this year. Uh, and I, I certainly hoped that, that her courage would win her some votes, even, you know, among Republicans, but uh, apparently it didn't. So, you know, those were two tough losses. Uh, it looks like John Tester is pulling it out. The, the Senate was not a good story for Democrats, but I'm always trying to remind people that the the Senate map and the math was terrible for yes. Democrats. Donald Trump won 10 states that Democratic senators had to defend. And I remember in the months after he was elected, people saying, oh my God, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin, Sherrod Brown in Ohio. They, these people could go Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, these states that he unexpectedly won, they were all in trouble. They won effortlessly. And even though my beat is women, and I didn't get to write about this, can we just say how fantastic it is that Scott Walker finally lost? I mean, that is a 
that's a huge deal. It's a wonderful, so, a wonderful thing. Wonderful, wonderful thing. So, in, you know, in all these places that uh, Trump snuck up on Democrats in 2016, the statewide, for the most part, the statewide Democrats won. I also want to point out some of the lesser-known races. We're all feeling bad that Beto lost in Texas. Of course, the polls always show that he was not going to win. He came amazingly close. He did amazing work. And he carried some amazing people to victory. In Texas, Beto lost, but Texas elected its first-ever Latina representatives to Congress, Sylvia Garcia, will represent Houston. She picked cotton and hacked hay in the fields of South Texas when she was growing up. And Veronica Escobar grew up in in El Paso, Beto's town, waiting on tables and taking fast food orders when she was a, a, a teenager. That is changing Texas politics, and the change is not going to stop now. No, it's not. That that's huge. Uh, Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher won in, in uh, around Houston in a Houston district, uh, and Texas Democrats won uh, somewhere around twelve state house seats. And you know, John, that I covered. I've been covering yes. the renewed interest of by Democrats in trying to win back some of the state houses. So, you know, I think the Beto effect is going to be felt for a long time. I mean, amazingly. You know, Hillary Clinton did better than Barack Obama. She won 800,000 more votes than Barack Obama did. Guess what? Beto got more votes than Hillary Clinton did in an election, in a, excuse me, a presidential election year. It's unheard of. It is truly unheard of. So we will hear from him again. I'm not sure where. Uh, I'm not sure how, but I know we will, and I think that it's clear that he carried a bunch of Democrats over the line with him. So he set up the the Texas Democratic Party to be a better, bluer, stronger party, Uh, Texas to be an increasingly purple state. They took a huge leap on election night, and, and I think we owe him a lot of thanks. And one more race I'd like to talk about, the Nevada Senate race, where uh, Jackie Rosen defeated uh, incumbent Republican Dean Heller. He was considered the most vulnerable Republican, but it's a great thing to have Jackie Rosen going to Washington. It really is. She is such a fighter, uh, and and she is an Emily's List stalwart. She is a a fighter for women's rights. Uh, And it's also... Nevada is a state that has a kick-ass Democratic Party, and it also reminds us what politics is like when you have a strong union movement. And let me just name a few more remarkable women who won election in Massachusetts. Ayanna Presley became the first woman of color in the history of Massachusetts to, rep- to go to the House of Representatives. The first Muslim women are going to Congress, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan and Ilhan Omar in Minnesota. The first Native American women are going to Congress, Sharice Davids in Kansas and Deb Haaland in New Mexico. That's all great news for America. Yes, it's a much, much younger, it's going to be a much younger delegation and a much more diverse delegation in addition to a much more female delegation. And that has, you know, that that will give us great things in terms of policy as well. So I think there's a lot to be happy about. I really do. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. 
Thank you, John. It's time to talk about politics in Brazil. For that, we turn to our man in Rio, Andy Robinson. He's a regular contributor to The Nation and a reporter for the Barcelona Daily La Vanguardia. Now he's on assignment in Latin America, and he's the author also of a book in Spanish on Davos and inequality. We reached him today in Rio. Andy Robinson, welcome. Hi. Brazil has the fifth largest population in the world, and the candidate there for president, the candidate of the far right, just won with 55%, Jair Bolsonaro. People say he's like Donald Trump. Do you think that's the best way to describe him? Well, you know, somebody told me, I I was talking to uh, the curator for a an exhibition that was attacked by Bolsonaro's supporters. It was sort of it was called Queer Museum. It was a, it was an exhibition in Porto Alegre of uh, art that was inspired by LGBT. Uh, and he he said to me, you know, um, we've got someone here who, if you can imagine it, is even worse than Donald Trump. So I travel around a lot, and I know the word fascist is bandied around a lot. But, you know, I think Bolsonaro is the the nearest thing you're going to get to, at least at the moment, to a genuine fascist, at least in his rhetoric. So if you compare him to the other uh, candidates for worst far-right-wing leader in the world today, we have Putin in Russia, we have Modi in India. You're suggesting Bolsonaro is farther to the right, closer to fascism than any of those people? Yes, I would say so. Certainly in, in his his history and, you know, the things that he's been saying over the last 27 years since he was first elected to Congress. I mean, he says outrageous things, you know, misogynistic, racist. He defends the military dictatorship. He says things like, you know, the military dictatorship in Brazil between 1964 and 1985 should have killed far more people. You know, it's that kind of rhetoric, of the sort of macho rhetoric, that he's turned into a sort of political weapon. He said he wants to close the Folha de São Paulo, the most important daily newspaper in Brazil, you know, which has been extremely critical of him. Well, you know, the question for us is why... 55% of Brazil's voters would vote for him. I know you've reported on Bolsonaro's supporters extensively. What what did you find? Well, it's very mixed. I think there is a hard core of far right, mainly men, sort of middle and higher income males, white males who are extremely right-wing in their views, a lot of evangelicals, so there are now 30 million evangelicals in, in Brazil, um, and a lot of them, because of the sort of traditional kind of politics of Christian conservatism, which is so well known in the United States, but that's also been utilized by Bolsonaro to build his base. But the vast majority, I would say, of the Bolsonaro voters are not in that category at all. They're just people who are utterly disenchanted 
by what's happened over the last four or five years in Brazil. First of all, uh, the, the the most serious economic recession in history, a an uh, anti-corruption probe by these activist attorneys called the Lava Jato, the car wash investigation, who have arrested a, a lot of people, mainly people in the Workers' Party, which is kind of suspicious in a way because Corruption is endemic in, in Brazil and has been for a long time. I mean, the whole political system is based on sort of patronage and clientelistic relationships. So there's no real novelty there. The only novelty has been the sort of aggressive investigation by this judge, Sergio Moro, who has been invited to join the government by Bolsonaro. Uh, so the perception is that the Workers' Party was profoundly corrupt. Lula, the former Brazilian president, is now in prison. So that sense that the whole system was just rotten, I think, has channeled into the vote for Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro who was seen as a kind of outsider. I also want to ask about a crime as an issue. I understand the official statistics are 64,000 murders in Brazil last year, and uh, especially in the favelas. Why didn't the Workers' Party do more to to deal with crime? I think that there was some success in the first 10 years of the Workers' Party government. I mean, the homicide rates fell drastically in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. And in the favelas, they adopted a strategy which was called pacification, where they sort of moved in military, you know, in a very quite aggressive way, but then uh, set up sort of systems of community policing. And that actually seemed to work in sort of years before the, the Olympic Games and the World Cup in 2014 was the World Cup, 2016, the Olympic Games. Um, you know, the economic success significant increases in minimum wages and, and the, the, you know, bringing 30 million people out of poverty, all that helped to uh, bring down crime. But in the last few years, the, the economic crisis has fueled an increase in property crime, although homicide rates are still significantly below their levels in 2000 in Sao Paulo and Rio. Can you tell us anything about the landless peasant movement and the homeless workers movement? They've been a key element of the sort of two crucial battles in Brazil, one for land reform and the other for housing rights, you know. And um, the MST, which is the movement for landless workers, is a historical organization that's organized farmers landless farmers and to occupy haciendas that haven't been that are, that are not being productively used etc the the homeless or homeless workers movement is run by Guillermo Bolos who was a candidate for the left organization PSOL who's now supporting PT is a very interesting group of housing rights demands and what has Bolsonaro said about these uh, two movements? Well, he, he he made a speech in which he said these left delinquents 
which was a reference to these two groups, should be banished from the fatherland or, or put in prison. He considers them to be class enemies, I would say. But Guillermo Bolos, who we interviewed in The Nation a couple of years ago, is a very interesting young left leader. And he, he is, uh, has called for democratic resistance to Bolsonaro. And in fact, in San Paolo and Rio, there will be protests headed by, by Bolos in this movement called The People Without Fear, which is the the way that the left is trying to organize some kind of democratic resistance to Bolsonaro. Andy Robinson reports for The Nation from Rio. You can read him at thenation.com. Andy, thanks for talking with us today. Okay, John, thanks very much. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about the campaign in Los Angeles to stop the city from hosting the Summer Olympics in 2028. Also, comment on the latest football news from the University of Maryland. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New segments every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.